Welcome to Lorica, the podcast of Father Patrick Cardine, pastor of St. Patrick's Orthodox Church in Bealton, Virginia. St. Patrick's is a parish in the Antiochian Orthodox Christian Archdiocese of North America, serving the Western Rite. Father Patrick is also the administrator of the Orthodox West. I recently heard about someone who is really angry at God, really angry at God for all the awful things he does to people or allows to happen to people, which I suppose, I suppose in this person's mind is the same thing, whether he caused them or allowed them to happen. If he allows it, he might as well have just done it himself. In the final tally, I guess. It's God who's responsible for all awful things. The result of this person's anger, at least for now, is not, they have not determined maybe that God doesn't exist, although that's often the final exit strategy for being trapped in this predicament. But that he's just a mean God, maybe not even worthy of our love. He's a mean God, not very likable, and I'm angry at him. Usually now, if a person can't work through this, eventually they will decide that God doesn't exist. It's really the only way to relieve the psychological pressure. It's somewhat understandable, actually, this position uh, to assume about God. And God anticipates this many times in the scriptures. He anticipates that we are going to take this position or be tempted by it. He's quite aware that this is, in fact, how things appear in this life about him. And he repeatedly warns us of this threatening delusion. Now, to further compound our problem, it is while God is earnestly warning us of the danger of this delusion that he is, in fact, the very one who is casting us into the fiery furnace in order to prove our mettle. I mean, he's, all the cards are stacked against him in this life, from our perspective. So it's easy for us to think he's a mean God. He warns us not to think that, but we think it anyway. And while he's telling us not to think that, he's the one throwing us in the fire. God is not the author of evil. He cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt any man with evil. All the same, he does test our faith that it might be proven, proven to be true, and proven as in refined and made perfect. And the testing of our faith consists in fiery trials of suffering of some form or another. God knows what's best for each one of us. So it's understandable that people might think he's mean. It's understandable. We could be a little patient with that initially. Why does he have to be so mean? Why can't he just prove our faith another way? You know, walks by the lake and mimosas at brunch. Something like that. Well, he can't. He can't. 
Otherwise, I assume he would. The fact that he doesn't means he can't. I really would like to tell people, <clears throat> I'm not sure this would be effective, but what I really want to say to people who are so angry at God for being mean and railing against him and threatening to transfer their allegiance, oh, one more time, Lord, and I'm going over to the dark side. You know, I don't know what they think, but I want to tell them that if they're right and he is such and such a God, it would sure make a lot of sense to stay on his good side. I mean, has that never occurred to them? Perhaps it would be wise to show a little respect and fear towards the one who can not only kill the body, but also the soul in hell. But there's no reasoning with people, so, you know, it doesn't really work that way, I guess. I've been reading through the Gospels in large swaths. I just finished Matthew. I like to do this a couple times a year. I highly recommend it. This is not part of your Bible reading program. You know, we read verses and meditate. Sometimes just meditate on one word. You know, if you're doing Lexio Divino, sometimes you'll just get caught on a phrase or a word and spend an hour there with the Lord. But what is also of tremendous value, and we actually have a reading plan for Lent, but I'm wondering if, and, and for Advent, but to read through the Gospels in large swaths, you get a very different perspective. There are quite a few references, after just finishing Matthew, references which seem to pile up rather quickly when you're reading large portions of people being cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Actually, a lot of them. And along with all of those, there are warning after warning, dire warnings of the consequences of an immoral life and ignoring God. This is, fills a good portion of the gospel message. Somehow in our day and age, we've exercised all of that. You know, if you chant the Psalms every day as well, which you should be doing, the most important thing you can do in this life is to offer the sacrifice of the Mass. The second most important thing you can do in this life is to chant the Psalms in church. The third most important thing you can do in this life is to chant the Psalms at home. Anyway, so uh, chanting the Psalms also will give you a very sober perspective on the nature of reality and our responsibility in it. Today in our gospel, the one Jesus said was the greatest ever born of woman there's a lot about John the Baptist in the Gospels and the book of Acts, much more than when you put it all together, it's more than you, you might think. You might be surprised at actually how much is said about John. John was not only the cousin, but the very special friend of Jesus. He was the one chosen by God. He was, think about this, filled with the Holy Spirit while in his mother's womb. Who can that be said about? <laughs> John the Baptist. He's the one who laid his hand on the Savior's head when he baptized him. He saw the heavens open, heard the Father's voice, and witnessed the dove descending and resting on the Son. He's the one who revealed Jesus to be the very Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. John, and John alone, of all the prophets, the greatest born of woman, he's the very person who closed out the old and opened the new. John is the only one stood with a foot in both worlds, the old and the new. No, no, no one else did that. 
His was the watershed role. John silenced the old word of the law, and he became the voice which opened the path for the eternal word to be sounded. Well, today, he sits in prison, and he is awaiting his execution. John will soon descend into Hades in order to preach there and continue his ministry of preparing the way for the Savior who is going to follow him and go down there and release those imprisoned souls. While he's sitting in prison, John, the forerunner, the forerunner, he goes before Christ. He anticipates everything that happens to Christ happens to John. He anticipates it all. So John, the forerunner, he's sitting there in prison and he hears about all these miracles that Jesus was doing. Hmm. Here's these miracles and he takes a few of his disciples, two or more, and he sends them to ask Jesus a question. Now when we hear the question, it's a very perplexing question. Actually, Really, at, at face value, it, it doesn't make any sense to us. And the fathers of the church were, they also treated it this way. By the way, everything I'm going to say today, I know what the fathers teach. St. Hilary, St. John Chrysostom, Cyril of Alexandria. Nothing I'm going to say today is contradictory to their teaching on this passage. Although it's a slightly different, you know, look at it. So, John sends his disciples to ask Jesus are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? Now, after everything that's transpired, the grace, the grace, no one received so much grace except the mother of God. The grace that John received in the womb, the revelation that John received through the Holy Spirit that he lived in, from before he ever took his first breath of air. <laughs> While he was still attached to the umbilical cord, he was in this state of being. This is a remarkable person in God's economy of things. Second only to our blessed mother in the eyes of the church. Through all of this, considering his courage and his strength, his perseverance, his sobriety of life, asceticism, his loyalty, his fearlessness, his uncompromising life. How can he legitimately ask this question at this time? Is he doubting? Is he in an emotional and psychological crisis of faith? That's what a lot of the progressives like to say. The fathers, by the way, reject this out of hand. But he is not in an emotional, psychological crisis of faith. And everything that I'm about to say does not contradict that. So he wasn't in some crisis of faith. Not unless, not unless Jesus himself was in a similar crisis in the Garden of Gethsemane. Or while he was hanging on the cross and crying out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Or Job who has popped into my last three sermons for some reason or another. I'm not sure why, but he keeps popping up. Job. Job, who was himself lobbed into the fiery furnace of testing by God because his faith had to be proven. And because Job was of such a caliber of man, his test was extra severe. But his glory and recompense would surpass the severity 
of his test. If Jesus was tempted and tested and prayed in great sorrow in the garden, why not John in prison? Is John greater than Jesus? Or is John less than Jesus? His question, John's question, does not in any way indicate that he was in some psychological crisis of faith any more than Jesus' sorrow said that he was in some crisis of faith in the Garden of Gethsemane. What it does demonstrate, though, it demonstrates the feat of his faith in the weakened condition of humanity. That's what's going on. When all is seemingly stripped away, all evidence of the truth, when grace is hid from us and abandonment felt, the soul of a great man believes and clings to hope, hope for truth and hope for the love of God, even when there is scant evidence for it in that suffering soul. Are you the one? Or should we look for someone else? The text clearly tells us that John asks this because he had heard of the miracles. That's why he asks. Jesus' answer to John through John's disciples is, well, go tell him I've healed the blind, lame, lepers, and deaf. I've even raised the dead. What kind of an answer is that? It's not an answer. That's no answer. Jesus doesn't answer John's simple question, his simple and straightforward question, are you the one or is there someone else? Jesus just repeats everything John already knows. Jesus tells him of the very things that prompted the question. John knows all that. That's why he asked the question. John hears that Jesus is healing the blind, the lame, the lepers, raising the dead. So he sends his disciples to ask, are you the one? And Jesus tells his disciples, go tell him, I'm the one healing the blind, the lepers, the lame, and raising the dead. He responds, but he doesn't answer John's question. Why? (laughs) That's the centerpiece of this whole story. It was unnecessary. It was not what John needed. John didn't need an answer to that question. John asked the question in his deep moment of Gethsemane, in his test. In fact, to answer his question would have done violence to John. It would have cheated him of his final feat of faith, which he was wrestling through his own Gethsemane furnace, there in prison. Not because he was weak, but because he is so strong, because he was counted worthy of God to endure such a test as a Gethsemane, as Job endured. Job's test was according to the measure of his own righteousness. The answer was from Jesus. John, you know who I am. And now in your darkest hour, you must believe. That was the answer. Is God a mean God? Because this is the way it is. And he is the one who is. It's not as if he remained aloof and sits in the heavens and watches our plight from a safe distance. No, he came down, he ascended that cross, he embraced and took on himself the entirety of our suffering and humiliation, 
And through all of that, he has made a path for us. The problem is for us. <laughs> all right, so far so good. He made a path for us, a path to salvation and redemption and even glorification and majesty and perfection. The problem is he does not remove the path of the cross for us by assuming it himself. That's the part that makes us mad at him and question his goodness. And he anticipates this response. And this is the very last thing that Jesus says, in fact, in this gospel lesson to John's disciples before they go back to John in prison with their report. He says, and blessed is he who shall not be offended in me. And he says to all of us, blessed is he that shall not be offended in me. This is, in fact, the real test that each of us has to face in this life. Can we reconcile a world which requires a cross for each of us with a God who claims to be good and loving and righteous and also a little terrifying? Having our own cross means having our own Gethsemane. They go together. And there's no other way. There's no way round. There's no way over. It must be through Gethsemane and the cross, the test of our faith. The test of our faith and Gethsemane by nature means in the absence of any proof or evidence or even getting our questions answered. If we cannot accept this, this is the very foundation of what it means to be a Christian. If you cannot accept this, you cannot be his disciple. It's that plain, that simple. But if we do pass through this test, we shall receive glory, and we shall receive a crown and eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. You have been listening to Father Patrick Cardine, pastor of St. Patrick's Orthodox Church in Bealton, Virginia. This has been a production of the Orthodox West.